This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the numbers of enrolled Americans continue to climb. The administration announced that over 8 million Americans have signed up for coverage of their insurance exchanges. And there's another estimate, Mark, that about 8 million Americans signed up for coverage with private insurers. And of these enrollees, it's believed that about 5.5 million were previously uninsured. A lot of new customers. Uh, but there were millions of Americans who are now covered as well under the expanded Medicaid program. In 25 states that chose to expand it. However, in states like Virginia and Florida, there are louder drumbeats touting the merits of expanded coverage for those living near poverty. It's becoming a more consistent theme in more red states who refused to consider the Medicare expansion. Well, as our listeners might remember, Mark, we've been predicting that, among others, the healthcare industry professionals in these states would be exerting pressure on the politicians to tap into the billions of healthcare dollars that are available to treat this uncovered population. That's real money, and it's being left on the table by those states that refuse to expand Medicaid. It's going to help alleviate disparities in access to care, and that is something that today's guest has made his life's work. Our guest this week is Dr. H. Jack Geiger, who's considered the founder of the community health center movement in this country, having opened up the first community health centers in the 1960s. He's not only a physician, but a lifelong activist for health equity as well. And Dr. Geiger is an inspiration to so many of us who've worked in the field of healthcare and in community health centers over these last decades, Mark. So we really look forward to that conversation. We do. And we also are going to have a visit from Laurie Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. She'll dispel another myth about Obamacare. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love to hear from you. And we'll get to our interview with Dr. H. Jack Geiger in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Three and a half trillion dollars. That's the estimated savings that could be had by corporations by the year 2025, according to a Standard & Poor's investor report, which looked at the likelihood most corporations with 50 or more employees will offload those employees onto health insurance exchanges by the year 2020. The Affordable Care Act provides incentives for corporations to subsidize their employees' health insurance purchases. Currently, just under 50 percent of Americans get their health coverage through their employers. And healthcare spending led the pack on the first quarter of 2014, with a surge in spending of about 9.9 percent, which kept the contracting economy in the black by a modest 0.1 percent. The report of the Independent Bureau of Economic Analysis credits spending surrounding the Affordable Care Act for the upsurge. Spending at U.S. hospitals could be impacted by a proposed Medicare rule seeking more transparency in hospital pricing for Medicare patients. Under the rule, payments for inpatient treatment at acute care hospitals would decrease by $241 million in 2015. The American Hospital Association is suing the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services over the policy. Medicare will increase payments to federally qualified health centers by as much as 32 percent later this year, while scrapping the fee-for-service model for one that gives the facilities a bundled rate for each patient encounter. On October 1st, CMS will begin transitioning some 8,900 FQHCs to a new prospective payment system. Under the current system, FQHCs are reimbursed for multiple services performed in one day. The new policy doesn't allow for multiple encounters in a single day. 
And don't expect annual lung cancer screenings to be paid for by CMS either. They issued a determination not to pay for annual CT scans for heavy smokers to detect early-stage lung cancer. A Medicare panel determined there is not enough evidence to justify annual CT scans to detect lung cancer. Smoking-related lung cancer kills about 130,000 Americans each year. The five-year overall survival rate for lung cancer patients is low, 16.8%, due in large part to late-stage diagnoses of the disease. Michigan physicians have spoken out about the risks of a dangerous increase in childhood diseases in the state, but many parents are not heeding the advice, refusing to vaccinate their kids. Michigan has the fourth highest non-medical vaccine exemption rate in the country. Coming up, our interview with Dr. H. Jack Geiger, who is to be an honored guest at the annual Weitzman Symposium on the campus of Wesleyan University on Thursday, May 15th. Dr. Geiger, considered the father of the Community Health Center movement, is receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award for his contribution to social justice and his commitment to creating a framework to serve the underserved in health care. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. H. Jack Geiger, physician, founding member of Physicians for Human Rights and Physicians for Social Responsibility, and the individual acknowledges the father of the community health center movement in the United States. Dr. Geiger is currently professor emeritus at the Sophie Davis School of Biomedical Education in New York City. He is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the Institute of Medicine, where he received IOM's most prestigious award, the Leinhardt Award for Outstanding Contributions to Minority health and also was awarded the Schweitzer Prize for Humanitarianism. Dr. Geiger, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm glad to be here. You know, uh, Jack, you're known as the father of the community health center movement in this country, a model you proposed in 1965 based on your experience as a young American medical student studying this sort of new kind of healthcare, which was called community-oriented primary care in South Africa. What was that new kind of healthcare that you saw and how did it influence the proposals you would later make for the development of the first community health center in America? Well, I think the most striking thing was the assumption of dual responsibility. That is, uh, that this institution, these community health centers, were responsible not just one by one for all of the individuals that came in as patients, but equally for the health of the population uh, from which they came ending the long-standing separation between primary care and public health. When I worked in the examining rooms in South Africa, on the walls of every examining room were graphs, histograms of the latest information on the prevalent conditions in that community, uh, incidence rates for infectious disease and the like. You could not look at an individual patient without knowing a lot about the population from which that person came and uh, responsibility for doing something about it to keep the next patient from coming in with that same problem. Jack, the seeds of the American Community Health Center movement, the two community health centers, one in Columbia Point in Boston and one in Moaned Bayou in the Mississippi Delta, really quite quickly grew to include health centers in many of America's cities. And today, of course, all across the country, we have more than 1,100 community health centers that serve 20 million people. But I, I find it kind of remarkable that the fundamental requirements 
foreign organization to be recognized by the federal government as a community health center remain remarkably true to your original vision and those principles of community-oriented primary care nearly 50 years later, which is a pretty long run, I think, by anybody's standards. Can you describe some of those uh, principles and requirements for us that that you found uh, essential to be in the guidance that would govern community health centers in the U.S.? The first was the idea that the most vulnerable populations in the United States, the people in greatest need and with the heaviest burdens of disease, needed something other than the fragmented, primarily hospital-centered care. We did a survey at Columbia Point in Boston, for example, uh, to find out what it took for a patient at Columbia Point to get to downtown Boston, go to an outpatient department clinic, and come back home. The average door-to-door time for a patient at Columbia Point to go get care in Boston and come back home was six hours. And what did you do if you had three small kids? And what did you do if one of the children had asthma and that was a different clinic that you had to go to the next day? So the first principle was of comprehensiveness, to put everything under one roof, to create, uh, and when I say everything under one roof, I mean physician, nurse, social worker, pharmacy, laboratory, all of the pieces that required you to run around frantically if you were of limited means. And the second was the principle of community participation and ultimately community control of what was now a community institution that belonged to the population that was being served. There's no other branch of uh, the American healthcare system in which the patients themselves have that kind of voice in the services that they're going to receive with regard to health care. You know, Dr. Geiger, your work has been all about population health and about understanding and addressing what is now called the social determinants of health. And that's been sort of at the heart of the community health center movement. And you are now sort of looking at the Affordable Care Act and its principles of patient-centered medical home, and you've said that this is really great news about the health care law, is that community health center practitioners no longer will have to carry this weight alone. Tell us how you see Obamacare addressing population health. Well, I think Obamacare is a first modest but enormously important step from moving us away from very, very costly, very inefficient distribution and practice of care away from a fee-for-service emphasis and on outcomes, at least the process of controlling costs of what has become such an outrageously expensive and inefficient system in those respects uh, that it bankrupts individuals and threatens to bankrupt the country. We need to dispel the myth, however, that underlies banking everything on Obamacare. The health of populations is determined by the very things you mentioned, Mm -hmm. the social determinants of health, uh, what you're exposed to, what happens to out in the real world, whether urban or rural, your income, your housing, your food, your exposure to toxins. What Obamacare will do is number one, greatly improve the quality and availability of primary care. Secondly, by greatly expanding insurance coverage, the number of people who have access to care. Insurance alone doesn't do it, but it's critical 
in providing access to care, and thus bringing uh, somewhere between 30 and 40 million more people with that kind of regular access and providing what I've just described, a patient-centered medical home with an emphasis not on the individual procedure, but on the goodness of the outcome. It gives us the opportunity with the marriage of primary care and public health interventions to start addressing the social determinants of health. But we need to understand that unless we create greater equality in the society, no single healthcare system is by itself going to suffice to produce healthy quality. The evidence is overwhelming that a childhood in poverty leads almost inevitably to a shorter life, one burdened by chronic illness, to lower educational opportunity, to all kinds of burdens that make one vulnerable and limit opportunity and achievement and bring greater susceptibility to disease. There is a whole series of studies demonstrating that adversity and poverty in early childhood starts measurably to rewire the brains of those infants. Healthcare system isn't going to be able to address that by itself. Well, Dr. Geiger, I want to stop there for just a moment before we maybe go back to the social determinants of health question. And that is uh, something that I know you have thought about from your earliest days about this team of people that are uh, that are there to provide health care. And I think we all feel like we're still likely to fall short. So what's your prognosis and what are your observations about the current generation of students of the health professions and how they feel about going into primary care and the likelihood that they will? Most of the predictions for the coming shortage of primary care practitioners, physicians at least, is in the range of high 30,000s or 40,000. And we know that simultaneously with Obamacare, uh, there will be increased demand. Uh, We know that from what happened in Massachusetts with greatly expanded insurance coverage. And the utilization of community health centers there, by the way, went up by something like 30%. There is very good evidence for what happens to medical students at present for a variety of reasons. Idealism is very high uh, when people enter medical school. That's why they came in the main. And there's very good evidence that that declines sharply and steadily over the first seven years of training. Uh, Corrodes empathy, and there are at least two reasons for that. One is the enormous burden of debt that all medical students start to accumulate and find that an almost insupportable burden that drives them, among other things, away from primary care and into procedure-based, higher-income, subspecialty practices. Uh, A second reason is a distorted reimbursement system, and that has got to change if we have to have any hope of solving this problem at all. Third, we are going to have to recruit increasingly from the pools that we know are likeliest to be interested in primary care and even more uh, are likeliest to undertake practice in underserved areas of really vulnerable and sick populations. 
what that really means is that we need to recruit from those very populations and establish the kinds of pathways that remove the barriers both of poverty and poverty of aspiration. Uh, We're not doing nearly enough about that. We're speaking today with Dr. H. Jack Geiger, who's considered a father of the modern community health center movement, is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the Institute of Medicine. Dr. Geiger, your activities in healthcare go far beyond the examination room. Been a founding member of Physicians for Human Rights, Physicians for Social Responsibilities, somebody who was there in the freedom marches in the South, Tell us about that relationship between health and poverty, health care and other human rights, and your thoughts about the social responsibilities for this next generation of medical providers. I came from that background of activism well before I developed an interest in medicine and decided to try to become a physician. And the answer came, obviously, that one has a responsibility as a physician to join or create uh, the organizations that do that kind of work, to have a life that addresses uh, what we know are root causes, injustice and inequity of disease in so many of the very patients that we're seeing. Uh, One of the first of those was uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility, which way back in the early 1960s, when our government, like many other governments, was trying to tell the population that nuclear war wouldn't be so bad if you just dug a shelter in your backyard, you'd probably be okay, of doing the first real analyses of the medical consequences of a thermonuclear war And that was followed during the 1980s and the worst of the nuclear arms race uh, and the Cold War by physicians doing what we called the bombing run, going city to city across the United States, getting on television, putting up a map of wherever we were and saying, here's the bullseye that'll be created by a one megaton thermonuclear blast, just one. And that was an important, and it turned out to be a compelling contribution. In the same way, Physicians for Human Rights formed in 1986, and both of those organizations ended up uh, sharing in the Nobel Prize for Peace. Uh, Physicians for Human Rights was organized in exactly the same way, to bring the skills of physicians to the investigation and documentation, uh, crimes against humanity, war crimes. There was a marriage of that impulse with the creation of this new community institution, the Community Health Center, in addressing, taking the responsibility not just to treat people, but to address uh, those social determinants of health. Back in Mississippi, uh, we started to address social determinants because they were so overwhelming. What is it that you do when you discover that people's primary source of water uh, was to collect rainwater in old pesticide barrels? Mm -hmm. What is it that you need to do when you discover that people are literally trying to shoot squirrels or gather pecan nuts Uh, because mechanization has destroyed the sharecropper culture. People have virtually no income. It was the mean when we arrived was 
less than $600 a year for a family of four. Whenever we saw a child in such a family with infectious disease and malnutrition, uh, we wrote prescriptions for food, so much meat, so much milk, so much vegetables, and arranged to have that family fill those prescriptions at local black grocery stores, which sent the bill to the community health center, which paid for it out of the pharmacy budget. And the governor of Mississippi screamed his worst fears had been realized Soviet communism, he thought, had come to the Mississippi Delta. And he yelled at Washington, and our funders in Washington got very upset and came down and yelled at us and me and said, what did I think we were doing? And I said, what was wrong with it? And he said, well, a pharmacy and a health center is for drugs for the treatment of disease. And I said, the last time I looked in the book, the best therapy for malnutrition was food. And he went away because there was really no honest answer uh, to that question. It is that spirit that still informs community health center and has to inform our whole approach to what we do. And there are many venues both in voluntary non-governmental organizations uh, to do that. Dr. Geiger, I know that our audience uh, appreciates that you are able to take a very long view of where we've been uh, in this country. In <laughs> I think that's a nice statement <laughs> for how old I am. And in our understanding of the impact of social determinants on health. But I know that you've lost none of your vision looking to the future and none of your passion for the future. And I think uh, I've come to the conclusion that uh, it's the case that every generation needs to discover some of this anew, to name the issues and formulate their response. And that was brought home recently when we had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Rishi Manchanda, who's written a new book, The Upstream Doctors, in which he calls for a new focus on social determinants and getting upstream to prevent illness and reduce their burden. And I want to give you a chance to say, with all the new incredible technology tools at our disposal today, do you foresee a new era in how we address those social determinants of health? And how do you think when you just put your vision cap on, this generation of public health and primary care practitioners will be fighting them? Well, let me put in a plug. There's a documentary about that first Mississippi Health Center that's really very easy to find. All you have to do is Google four words out in the rural Uh, which is part of that documentary's title. We attracted recruits for physicians and nurses and others that had always wanted the opportunity to do this kind of work among vulnerable populations. For example, at the Buford Jasper Health Center in South Carolina early on, uh, they discovered that they were confronting a virtual epidemic of hypertension And then they discovered that the reason was that people were drinking brackish surface water, their only source of supply, which had a monstrous salt content. So a major part of their work became installing water systems uh, that uh, reached a deeper aquifer and gave people what most of the rest of society had, uh, access to decent, clean, safe water. Well, The way we have to do that now, I think, because the tasks of providing medical care are so consuming without abandoning our interest in social determinants, to be actively promoting collaboration with 
other segments of government and the private sector. That is uh, the housing authorities, the transportation authorities, the education authorities. We have high school-based community health centers that give us that opportunity. We have at least four community health centers that now house charter high schools within their walls. And so investments that we can make jointly with others, we community health centers, that we can make jointly with other agencies, both public and private, in education, housing, employment, job training, environmental protection, uh, are the way we have to start going after those problems now rather than undertaking all of those burdens as primary responsibilities on our own. We are adding lawyers to the teams at community health centers through medical legal partnerships, college students through health leads, and we need to expand that pattern to address not just palliative efforts, uh, but structural efforts to change uh, the distributions of opportunity in this society. We've been speaking today with Dr. H. Jack Geiger, father of the community health center movement in this country and founding member of Physicians for Human Rights and Physicians for Social Responsibilities. You can find out more about his work by going to physiciansforhumanrights.org. Dr. Geiger, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare Today and making a difference for all Americans. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, since 2009, election campaigns have been filled with ads about the Affordable Care Act. Overwhelmingly, those ads have attacked the law and those who support it. The 2014 midterm elections could be even more intense. A group that tracks political ad spending, Cantar Media's Campaign Media Analysis Group, has predicted that this election's advertising would rival several years' worth of Anti-Affordable Care Act spending. One claim we've seen again and again in such ads is that premiums have skyrocketed under the law. That's misleading. Premiums for those who buy their own private insurance will go up or down, in some cases significantly, depending on individual circumstances, such as health condition, age, and what kind of insurance one had before. And most of those purchasing plans through the exchanges will receive federal subsidies to help cover the cost. Most Americans, 48% of the population, have employer-sponsored insurance where premiums aren't skyrocketing. In fact, the growth of those premiums has been at historically low rates in the past few years. A small increase in work-based premiums can be linked directly to the ACA, however. Experts told us in 2011 that the law had caused a 1% to 3% increase that year due to an increase in required benefits. The law had eliminated pre-existing condition exclusions for children, required free preventive care and coverage of dependents on their parents' plans up to age 26, and it had increased caps on annual coverage. But most of the increase in premiums that year was due to higher medical costs, the usual culprit. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. 
Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has been taking a number of hits lately for attempting to ban everything from styrofoam packaging for takeout food to large sugary drinks in restaurants and city-run facilities. Dodging criticisms that he's practicing nanny politics, Bloomberg has nonetheless forged ahead. He cites his interest in not only improving the health of his New York City constituents, but in setting an example for other public officials to follow around the country. It's been 10 years since Mayor Bloomberg launched his first controversial ban, ending smoking in bars and restaurants throughout the city's five boroughs. The proposed Smoke-Free Air Act was met at the time with a hailstorm of criticism and dire warnings of lost business and tax revenue due to the ban. But at a recent gathering at a venerable old New York City watering hole, the Old Town Bar off Union Square, Bloomberg shared facts that bore out quite a different story. Since the ban went into effect, health officials estimate that 10,000 lives have been saved in reduced smoking rates and a dramatic reduction in exposure to secondhand smoke. And the restaurant and the bar owners, well, they've apparently seen the light as well. The mayor was flanked by Old Town's owner, Gerard Meager, who was one of the band's most vocal opponents at the time. Meager compared his tavern's receipts from before and after the ban and found his business actually increased by 20%. Turns out, once the ban was in place and the perennial blue haze of smoke was gone, people began to spend more on the restaurant food. Meager also touted another bonus, fewer cleaning bills. Smoking bans are now commonplace across the country boding well for the health of those working in bars and restaurants as well as the patrons. A municipal smoking ban that not only improves the health and well-being of workers and patrons, but has turned out to be good for the business bottom line as well. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.